Well, good morning, all. We are in the, right in the heart of the betrayal and trial of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the betrayal of Judas, and now today we're going to be looking at Jesus' trial before the highest-ranking governing authority uh, that's there in Israel because of Rome, Pontius Pilate. But before we do that, I want to look at this portion of the Gospel of Matthew in the proper light. And in order to do that, I want to take us back to the beginning of the story. And when I say beginning of the story, I'm not just talking about like the beginning of Matthew, but way, way back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, particularly the story of Cain and Abel. But in order to understand the story of Cain and Abel, we have to look at the story that comes right before them, which is the story of their parents and the first parents, Adam and Eve. So in the creation account, God creates the entire world, and at the end of it, the sort of the climax of the creation of the world is his creation of the first humans. Genesis 2, 7 says this, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, a few important Hebrew notes. It says that the Lord God formed the man. Now, the Hebrew word for man here is Adam which should sound familiar, Adam sounds like Adam. Because Adam, Adam, is the word in Hebrew for man or human, but it's also the name of the first human. So it'd almost be like um, God creates a man and then he names him man. You know, we do this. What's up, man? It's like, that's not his name, that's what he is. What's up, man? What's going on, man? Um, so the Lord God formed the Adam, the Adam, the man, and he does so from the dust of the ground. Now, the Hebrew word for ground here is Adamah, which sounds a lot like Adam. So you have the first human being is named Adam, and he's made from the dust of the Adamah. You see the similar sounding words. It's a way of saying like, you're just from the ground, you're dirt, you're dust. And it's this weird kind of two-part kind of characteristic of human beings in that in one sense, humans... We're from the ground, from mud, from dust. Like, that doesn't speak of anything lofty. That's very lowly. It's like, what are you? We're dirt people. You know, you're dirt people, and guess what? When you die to the ground, you go back to. From dust to dust type of thing. You go back into the ground. Okay, so in one sense, we're nothing. You're, you're what you walk on, mud, dirt, ground. But in another sense, man is unique and special because he's not just the Adam from the Adamah, but it says that God himself breathes life into him. And so human beings are unique in that we are both from dirt below and from breath above, kind of from heaven and from earth. And so Adamah created from the, Adam created from the Adamah. If you're familiar with the story, uh, God creates the first humans, there's Adam and Eve, everything's going great, but then a serpent enters into the scene and the first human rebellion occurs. After the first human rebellion against God, God shows up and he pronounces a judgment against Adam, Eve, and the serpent. It's words of judgment, but in the midst of these words of judgment, and particularly against the serpent, there is a word of hope. God declares, I will put, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity strife, war, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this idea of enmity. There is strife and war against the offspring 
of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The Hebrew word for offspring here is zerah, and it literally means like seed. So in a, in a plain sense of the reading, we're talking about physical descendants. There's going to be physical descendants from Eve and physical descendants from the serpent, and they're going to be at war with each other. But you can't take that literally because you're not being warned to watch out for like little baby snakes. You know, if, if, if the text was saying, watch out for the offspring of the serpent, you're looking for, you know, watch out for the baby snakes. That's not what this is saying. You can hate snakes for your own reasons, but it's not from Genesis chapter three. Okay, so the idea is that there will be people who align themselves with the serpent and they do what he wants them to do. And then there will be people who stand against the serpent. And the hope is that one day from the offspring of Eve, someone's going to come to defeat the serpent. Like that's the hope. At the very beginning of scripture, there's a war, there's the serpent people, and then there's people who are aligning themselves that are opposed to it. And someday, one day, someone's gonna come and defeat the serpent. Okay, so that's the hope. Now, what happens though at this point is we as uh, modern Christians kind of, we have some biblical knowledge that then we bring to this text. But if you were just reading this story for the first time and you hear that one day there's going to be a Zerah, a seed, a descendant, an offspring of Eve who's gonna fight the serpent. Who are you, who do, where do you next look? Do you go to the future like 2,000 years? No, you're going, what's their kids like? Because who is the, the, the offspring of Eve that's going to defeat this serpent? Well, let's see who the offspring is. And we're introduced right away to the main candidates for the job description. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruits of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offspring, he had no regard. So again, if you're paying close attention to the story's detail, details, you're going, which, which one of these kids is one of these kids going to be, to be it? And in the culture of the day, kind of in this ancient Near Eastern setting, you would likely default to the firstborn son. You'd likely default to Cain. Cain's going to be the one. He's going he's to get him. He's going fight, to fight the snake, the serpent of old. Now, you just under, have to understand how formative the prophecy of enmity is. It's easy for us just to read that and move on, but picture yourself at a movie theater and uh, it says like the production company presents this director starring so-and-so and so-and-so and and then the title of the movie appears and then it goes to a black screen and then some cool looking font with mist behind it shows up and it says something like, long ago our forefathers fought against an ancient dragon forged in the fires of something. I had a lot of geeky names that I could have thrown out, but I'm trying to show restraint. Um, and then it says, and even though the great king so-and-so was defeated, a prophecy was made that one day a son of the king would come bearing the, the sword of his father and defeat the great dragon of old. So as the movie begins, what are you anticipating? You are waiting for some descendant of this king to come with a sword and strike the dragon. Like the whole story is built upon that. 
at the beginning of the Bible is the prophecy that one day a son is going to come and defeat the serpent. So you're waiting. And now first candidates, Cain and Abel. But there's already a hint that things aren't going well. Why? Because it says the Lord doesn't accept Cain's offering, but he accepts Abel's offering. Now, we don't know why, and there's all kinds of debate about why, why is one sacrifice accepted, why isn't the other. No one knows. There's, there's great opinions, but the, the text just isn't clear. But this is what happens next. Cain is rejected, and he becomes very angry, and it says his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is not against Cain. God is for Cain. He's warning him. There is sin and it's crouching like, like a lion, like a predator. It's coming to get you. You, you, you can't let it defeat you. The desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. Now, interesting here. Um, God is for Cain. He doesn't want him to fall, but he's giving him warning. Cain is filled with anger over his sacrifice not being accepted. And so the clues are starting to come to the surface. But there's also another clue. Because remember, Adam's name and the ground, they all had meaning in Hebrew. And this is true of Cain and Abel. So Cain, Cain in Hebrew, means something like to acquire, or it could mean a, a spearhead or a spear or like a weapon. So the word is associated with taking, acquiring, possessive, possessing, and the weapon, particularly a spearhead. Abel in Hebrew is chevel, and it means a vapor. And we've talked about this in the past, but chevel is something like that which is here today and gone tomorrow. So like your breath on a cold day, picture your breath on a cold day. You see it and you see the breath and it has some, some substance there, but before you could reach up your hand and even grab it or touch it, it's gone. Chavel is vapor. It's breath that's here today and gone tomorrow, which is incredibly haunting when you know the stories of the details because you might picture Eve saying, let's name our boy Chavel. Because even though we are dirt, even though we are dust people, God breathed his life into us. And this is my special boy, made in the image of God. But again, if you know the story, you know that Hevel is also that which is here today and gone tomorrow. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so here you have a very powerful image. You have Abel's innocent blood falling to the ground and the ground is soaking up the blood. Also, it's important to note that blood in the scriptures is incredibly important. Leviticus 17, 14 says that the life is in the blood. And even more interesting, the Hebrew word for blood is dam. So you have an adam whose dam blood is now soaking up the adamah, is soaking into the adamah in the ground. 
And now the ground that's filled with blood is crying out. There's injustice. There is murder. This man is guilty. Powerful, powerful image. Powerful image. There is a field of blood. And that field of blood is crying out to God. Now, just as the prophecy in Genesis about the enmity between the two parties is formative for the rest of Scripture, the story of Cain and Abel is formative for the rest of Scripture. I don't know the exact reason why, but kind of in modern church culture, Cain and Abel is a story among many in the Old Testament that you teach and has like a, a moral lesson in it. So there's uh, David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the well, and then Cain and Abel. And it's certainly a story among many stories, but what you need to understand that in the intertestamental period leading up to the time of Jesus, there was a lot of literature being written and the story in Cain and Abel was not just a story among many. It was foundational, it was formative for the entire kind of narrative structure of the Hebrew scriptures. So oftentimes people would would talk about Cain as if he is the quintessential archetypical bad guy. Like Cain is the main human bad guy. Today what we do is we kind of, Satan's the main bad guy, which Satan is the main bad guy in scripture, but the logic behind the Jewish writings in the time leading up to Jesus was this. You're not tempted to be like Satan. Satan is the person who tempts human beings. You will be tempted to be like Cain. So in the story, the archetypical bad human isn't the serpent, although he is in, in, in the big picture, the one you're actually going to be tempted to be like is Cain. So they would write things like, don't walk in the way of Cain. They didn't say don't walk in the way of Satan. They said don't walk in the way of Cain. This is actually in the second to the last book of the Bible, Jude. It, tells, it speaks of false teachers, and it says these false teachers walk in the way of Cain. Likewise, Abel in the writings leading up to the time of Jesus, is often depicted as the quintessential archetypical good guy. He is the one who is faithful to God and makes an acceptable sacrifice, and in his faithfulness, he is still unjustly murdered. So some people in the time of Jesus actually considered him the first martyr. He's the first person that dies because of his faithfulness to God. So these images are incredibly important. They're formative for the whole arc of scripture. You have Cain, the one who acquires and possesses. He is the spear. He is the head of the spear. And he sheds innocent blood. He walks in the way of the serpent. You're tempted to walk in the way of Cain, but Cain walks in the way of the serpent. There's one image. On the other image, on the other side, you have Abel, the innocent one, the innocent son who makes an acceptable sacrifice to the father but is nonetheless murdered. And so those two images are powerful and they are formative and and people are using those categories in the writings leading up to the time of Jesus. Okay, so let's review. There is an Adam man who's named Adam, man, uh, and he's made from the Adama. So he's made from Adama ground, but he's also made of Dom blood. The first Adam's children get caught up in a fight. There's enmity, there's strife. And Cain, the spear, the weapon, 
kills the innocent son who makes the acceptable sacrifice and his blood pours into the field. And so you have this field of blood that is crying out because of the injustice. Now take all of this with you to the trial of Jesus. As we read last week before Jesus is before Pilate, Judas hands him over, he betrays him. And the words of Judas are this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So the way to articulate this sort of in a possible first century Jewish sense would be Judas walks in the way of Cain. Judas walks in the way of Cain. And it's not just because he betrays somebody. Who does Judas betray? Judas betrays the innocent brother. The innocent one is betrayed and ultimately will be killed because of the actions of Judas. So Judas is saying, I betrayed innocent blood. He walks in the way of Cain. Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver that he has and he goes and tries to give it to the chief priest. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful for them to be put into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Okay, it's fascinating. Um, the chief priests and, and the religious leaders, they're a part of the plot to kill Jesus. They're in on it, right? But for whatever reason, they don't want the money. They're like, that's blood money. We can't put that in the temple treasury. They'd be like, we're not going to give that to the church. We're not going to put this in the temple treasury. It's blood money. So go do something else with it. And what do they do with it? They take blood money and buy a field. And the field is known as the field of blood. And the field of blood was purchased with blood money that was used to betray the innocent one. There might be something there. There might be a connection. Maybe not. Maybe not. We don't know. But you see this, the, the image filled of blood, innocence, betrayed. Could be something there. Maybe not. Let's keep going. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus doesn't answer. It's almost as if to say, Jesus isn't on trial. Jesus is not on trial. Jesus is not defending his innocence. Jesus does not have to prove his case. Jesus is not even going to respond. It's as if Jesus is saying, make no mistake about it. I'm not on trial. I don't have to defend myself. I mean, think about this. Torture, crucifixion, and death await Jesus. And he's saying, things aren't out of control. I don't have to defend myself. Crucifixion, torture, and death await. And Jesus is saying, I'm in control even in this moment. This isn't happening because things got out of hand. Jesus doesn't have to defend himself. Jesus doesn't have to plead his case. He doesn't have to prove his innocence. Even in this moment, the Son of God is in absolute control. And I don't mean just in this situation. Theologically, we would say that even in 
the moments leading up to his crucifixion, all of reality is still presently sustained by his power and will. The scriptures say that all things are made through him, by him, and for him, and that all things hold together through the Son of God. That didn't go on pause in the incarnation. Jesus was, in the moment of his trial, holding all things together. Every last atom that composes our material reality was being held together by the power of the Son of God. He doesn't need to answer. Things aren't out of control. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. We don't know all the details. We don't have the historical information, but apparently there is some tradition that takes place around the feast of the governor, where the governor, Pilate in this case, uh, says, is there, is there a prisoner you would like me to release? And maybe he does it to score political points. Maybe he just wants people to applaud him for he's merciful. We don't, again, we don't know the historical information, the motivation, but there is a tradition that someone can get released. And Pilate puts before the crowds two options. Barabbas or Jesus. Now what's interesting is Pilate's wife comes to him. It's like, don't do, we don't want to do anything with this man. Like, this guy, have nothing to do with him. He is a righteous man. So the wife of Pilate is declaring the innocence and righteousness of the individual on trial. Now, there's some more information about Barabbas you need to know. Because oftentimes we just picture him as like a robber or like a, you know, maybe he got caught stealing bread or something like that. But the other gospels fill in the picture of exactly who Barabbas is and why he's in prison at this point. Mark 15, 7 says this, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there is a man called Barabbas. So he's not like just a robber or a rebel. He's a revolutionary insurrectionist who's willing to, get, willing to commit murder. This is likely true, by the way. Um, sometimes the, the, you know, the thief on the cross, we call him the thief on the cross, but the Greek isn't, isn't as clear as that. It may mean that he was likewise like an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, someone willing to kill other human beings to get their way. So Barabbas is a murderer. And Mark doesn't make it seem like he's falsely accused and you know, he, he, we can prove him innocent. Mark just says he's a murderer. Like we all know that. He's, he, shed, he shed blood, shed innocent blood. So Barabbas is someone who takes up the sword and is willing to kill and shed human blood in order to get his way. It's very interesting because you could say that Barabbas walks in the way of Cain. They are the ones who are turned to hatred and anger, so much so that they're willing to kill an image bearer they're willing to kill someone made in the image of God and shed their blood. So you have this choice before you. Who do you want, Jesus 
the one who heals, who forgives, who teaches, who cast out demons, the servants of the serpent? Or do you want Barabbas, the one who takes up the weapon like his father Cain and is striking down other image bearers? Who do you want? Who do you want? That's, that's sort of the, 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 the two options that are being presented before us. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of you do you want me to release for you? You have Jesus, the innocent son, who is claiming to make an acceptable sacrifice to his father. Do you follow this? You have the innocent son who is making the acceptable sacrifice on one side, who loves and forgives. And then on the other side, you have Barabbas, who has turned to killing and murder. Which path do you like? Which way, which method do you want? Now, something else about Barabbas you need to be aware of. Because just like Adam and Cain and Abel, all of these names have unique information embedded into them. And so what does Barabbas' names mean? Well, the first syllable in Barabbas, bar, is the word for son. And we've talked about this before. So Peter is called Peter bar Jonah, Peter son of Jonah. So in Hebrew, you insert bar, in Aramaic too, you insert bar before a name and it's, it's saying you're the son of so-and-so. So Peter bar Jonah, Peter son of Jonah. So first part of Barabbas' names means son of. Son of who? Well, the second part is Abbas, the root of that is Abba. So he is Bar Abba. Barabbas is Bar Abba. Bar Abba. It's the Aramaic name for father. Abba. Barabbas is literally the son of the father. So before the crowds that day, you have two individuals two sons of the father, two different ways of living, two different modes of being. You have the son of the father who is the innocent son who's laying down his life to make an acceptable sacrifice, who offers grace and forgiveness and mercy and truth. Or you have the son of a different father. He is the son of Cain. He is the son of Adam. And he takes up the spear and violently hates and murders It's interesting, remember the original prophecy? It said that it would be the offspring of Eve. Very interesting. In Jesus, you have an offspring of Eve, but he has a different father. He is presented to us as the second Adam because he has his heavenly father. Second Adam, first Adam. First Adam walks in the way of Cain and the spear, And the other Adam is the innocent one who lays down his life to make the acceptable sacrifice. Who do you want? Who do you want? Who do you choose? Now, it's really easy. You know, most of us, we'd we'd make the right decision. Come on. Which way do you like? The path of sacrificial love that suffers on behalf of others? Or do you like the path where you take it into your own hands? So before us, we have two sons of the Father, the way of the spear and the way of the cross. 
the way of hatred and violence and the way of sacrificial love. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Give us Barabbas. Give us the other son of the father. Give us the one who who murders and commits acts of violence. Give us that guy. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so now unthinkable, horrific torture will be executed upon Jesus. And right there, in sacred ground, the beginning of the shedding of Jesus Christ, the innocent one who makes the acceptable sacrifice, begins to soak into the ground. Pilate wants to wash his hands clean of this, but there is no amount of soap and water that can wash out that type of guilt. The crowds, the words are haunting here. His blood be on us and our children. That's haunting words. Let it be on us and our children. Now here's the offensive part. Because it's really easy as you're presented between these two options to be like, oh, I choose this one. And these guys were whacked. They they wanted Barabbas more than Jesus. You have to understand what the scriptures are doing here. You're a part of that crowd. You're there. You can say, are you kidding me? I'm not there. I wasn't there. It's 2,000 years ago. No, in one sense, you were not there. In another sense, you were there. Because the entire Christian tradition is explicitly crystal clear at this point. Christ was crucified for the sins of the world. He wasn't crucified just because some people got mad. Christ was crucified for the sins of the world, for collective humanity. We're a part of that. You're a part of that. This is reflected in the songs we sing. There's a song, How Deep the Father's Love. The line says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And it's this idea, you were mocking Jesus. And then it says, it was my sin that held him there. Like, if Christ is crucified for the sins of the world, you're a part of that. I'm a part of that. We're all a part of that. And again, no one likes to hear that stuff because we all like to think we're so noble, morally courageous, and just committed to the good all of the time. It's like, no, we choose the way of Cain all the time, again and again and again. It's very easy to. And if you don't think you choose the way of Cain, just put yourself in a situation where you're slightly frustrated for five minutes and see how much your demeanor and attitude changes. Put yourself in bad traffic and have someone cut you off and watch how quickly your entire composition and constitution changes to the way of king. And in one sense, that's funny, but in another another sense, that's scary. That's nightmare scary. That your entire attitude can change so quickly. 
And so we can be like, oh, look at these people, his blood be on us. No, no, we're there that day. It was my sin that held him there. He's crucified for the sins of the world. And then the haunting words, his blood be on us. So you have these images. There's the son of the father who walks in the way of Cain, walks in the way of the serpent. He kills just like his father Cain did. He's the son of the spear. And then you have a different son of the father who doesn't take up the sword. He takes up a cross. It's the way of sacrificial love. And ultimately, the innocent son who makes the acceptable sacrifice's blood will be soaked up in the ground. Now, if you've been keeping track, there's this this theme of blood going on, like nonstop. So at the very beginning, Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then you have the chief priests and the, the religious leaders. They're in on the plot, but they still, we don't, this is blood money. We don't want anything to do with it. So they buy a field that's known as the field of blood, which should take you all the way back to the original field of blood. And then you have Pilate, who's not the good guy in the story, but at least he's saying, I, I want to try to wash my hands clean of this. There's no amount of soap and water that can wash that type of guilt off. And then finally, kind of climactically, you have the crowds in unison, in a united rebellion against God. His blood be on us and our children. That's pretty terrifying. They could mess with you, right? Isaac, you're, you're saying that there's blood on my hands for the death of God? The scriptures are saying again and again and again, Jesus is crucified for the sins of the world. We contributed to the problem. We're a part of it. And you could start going, like losing it. Like I'm guilty. There's, There's blood on me. There's blood on me. And the people, the words, his blood be on us, on our hands and our children. But here is the great mystery and paradox of Christianity. Up until this point, any time there is shedding of innocent blood, the image is the blood goes into the ground and the blood cries out for justice. It says, guilty, there is the murderer. And the mystery and paradox of Christianity is this. Yes, the blood of Jesus is on your hands, but this blood does not cry out guilty. This blood was shed to pronounce innocence. This blood does not accuse. Accusation is the way of the accuser, the serpent of old. This blood washes away guilt. And so the response from the Christian is, Lord, not just your blood on my hands, but on my head and my feet, wash my whole body with your blood. Cleanse me. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Lord, put your blood on my hands, my feet, my head, all of me. Wash me clean. I know I am guilty. So Christ comes to shed his blood, not to condemn, but to forgive. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Christ is the offspring of Eve. 
He is the son of the father who has come to defeat the works of the serpent. And he does so by doing the exact opposite of Cain. Cain takes up the weapon to kill the innocent. Christ is the innocent son who is murdered to make the acceptable sacrifice. And in his death and in his cross and in his blood, you can be washed clean of all your sins. You can be made whole. You can be forgiven. And so this blood does something different than just accuse. This blood says your sin, no more. Your faults, no more. Your shame, don't have to carry that anymore. Put the shame down. Put the guilt down. Stop walking with that. When your shame and guilt gets in a fight with the blood of the Son of God, who wins that fight? The blood of the Lamb every single time. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 6 through 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 9, 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, whom through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Some of you are in desperate need of hearing this. You have the guilty conscience. If the blood of goats and, and cows in the Old Testament purified the flesh, how much more does the blood of the Son of the living God do for you? You don't have to carry the guilty conscience. You turn from your evil works to good works and serve the living God. A scene from the book of the Revelation. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Do you follow that image? It, it technically doesn't make sense. Their robes are washed white in the blood of the lamb. The blood, there's, the life is in the blood. There's power in the blood. There is life in the blood that is able to make whole the Adam. The Dom can make whole the Adam that was made from the Adamah. They're washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. 
Do you see the power of this? While we were weak, while we were sinners, Christ died. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So it wasn't as if God looked down and found, look at this, Adam. This one's great. These other ones are kind of, they're not too great, but man, this one's good. No, God looks down and we've all turned against him. We're all enemies. But while we were enemies of Christ and his cross, he lays down his life. And that should be incredibly encouraging because it means Christ loves you and died for you at your worst. Not when you got your act together, but at your worst. When you were yelling, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. He in his sovereignty found a way so that his blood would be on you. But in a way that could lead to your forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. So, as believers, we now commit ourselves to the way of the Son of the Father. And we trust in his shed blood. A blood that doesn't bring accusation, but a blood that washes, washes away guilt. And thank God for that, because we bring a lot of our mess to the table. But here's the thing. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are adopted. You are made a son or daughter of the king. Nevertheless, you still live on earth. You are not in the resurrected body. Christ hasn't come again. So you still live down here on earth where the way of Cain is prominent. And every single day you are tempted to walk in the way of Cain. And this world is designed to get you to walk in the way of Cain. This world is brutal and horrible and evil and it will hit you again and again and again. And what you will want to do is you will want to turn to bitterness, hatred, violence, envy, and murder. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you ever just look at what's going on in the world and it so infuriates you. It's so evil and wrong that it's so easy to say, let's do this my way. Let's do this the way of Cain where you acquire and you possess and you do things your way. This world is trying to break you so that you will turn to envy. You will turn to bitterness. You will turn to anger. And there's always two paths before you. Two sons of the father. There is the way of the cross and the way of the spear, the way of sacrificial love and the way of hatred. And so even as a Christian, you have to daily choose the way of the cross and the way of sacrificial love because it's real easy to walk in the way of Cain. But believers commit themselves to daily mimicking our Lord Jesus, who laid down his life that while we were still sinners, he might reconcile us. You were loved at your worst. Do you know that? You were loved at your worst. On your worst day in the worst possible act, Christ died for you. Therefore, choose to walk in his ways every single day. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my body, it's given to you. Now let's go back to that scene where he's on trial before Pilate. Jesus doesn't give an answer. He doesn't have to defend himself. He doesn't have to plead his innocence. Why? Because 
It wasn't some haphazard mistake that the crowds got out of hand and now Jesus is set to be crucified. Christ's life was not taken from him. He says, this is my body, it's given for you. No one takes this from him. He gives it freely and he gave it to you and for you on behalf of you at your worst. That's a heavenly type of love. That is a love from above. That is not a earthly type of love. And so, Lord, we remember what you did on our behalf. And likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood poured out. It's his blood poured out for us. And so when we take this, the very act is a way of declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so we know Jesus has not returned. Therefore, the pool of the serpent is still there. The gravitational pull of Cain is still trying to suck us into its orbit. You resist that. Resist the world. Resist the way of Cain. Fear God. Trust in him and walk in the ways of the cross. And so, Lord, we declare your death and resurrection now, and we pray that we will be faithful declaring it until you return. And so, Father, we turn to you now, and we ask that we would be empowered and filled with your spirit in the worship and adoration of your Son. We worship Jesus, the true Son of the Father, who comes to earth not to condemn but to save. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but to save it. And so we trust in his work. May our hearts and minds be properly fixed upon you, Lord, for you are worthy of all worship, praise, and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.